4: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people
3: today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller.
0: You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Third on KCB, 106.5 FM Los
3: Angeles, 102.3 FM
1: Riverside,
0: and one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs.
1: Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, and we've got... The old old Joe Goldberg back yeah. again. Yeah, older. I'm in the yes.
4: house. The older I'm not, Yeah, I'm out of practice, Al. I've been off for so long that I uh, hope I can live up to the standards that you've set for the uh, for the show. I'm just it's been so long.
1: Well that ain't gonna be hard. Come on. <laughs> That's why I'll wait for that answer. Yeah, ain't ain't. Well listen I'm out there for you. What what is the uh you know, Christmas New Year's? What happens with the Goldberg House over the season of joy? Well well, some people
4: travel to exotic places and islands, and we uh, pack up and drive to beautiful downtown Kokomo, Indiana, to go see the grandkids and uh, sit and watch the grandkids run around and then realize that there's only so much grandkids you can take. And then you uh, you drive back home, but they came with us. so We had like two weeks of the family. It was great. It was actually great. And uh, yeah, do your best. Yeah, you realize that, once again, the clichés are true. It's good to be a grandparent. And small children are for the
1: young. That's right. kind of the kind of what I got. How about yeah, you, you? You can give them back. Oh, me! Yes. I just I, it, you know I make the place all really dark, and I just hang out with my dog and I write. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to do that. I'm outlining, finishing up the outline today. I'm assuming
4: because you live out in like the forest, you chop down a tree somewhere and drag it back on your sled and things like that.
1: No, that's 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 too much work for me <laughs> at this point in my life. No tree chopping. No, I know I no. Turn on the T V and we're right. That's it. Yes. Lots you of know. sports, lots of football. Watch my Iowa
4: Hawkeye's go and I think they just defeat.
1: Well, there you go. See you got it all. You got it <laughs> yeah. all. We well, have Caitlin
4: Clark go for women's basketball. So let's get off of that. See you later. Yeah.
1: Well there you go. Yeah. Well, we Well today we are covering um a new book in a series or a newer book I guess it came out in 23. I have to keep remembering that last yes. year now right yeah I had that problem too yeah well it goes fast uh listen so we've got the uh the book is called the great unmaking and it's the course of Empire series book three so with us is the author of that book Brian a Nelson so thank you for being here Brian
3: thank you Alan thank you Joe great to be here
1: listen brian um, let's let 's start out with you. Um, what kind of a writer um, do you put yourself how do you, How do you describe yourself if someone says Oh, you write? What do you write?
3: Uh, so I write a, a variety of things. I do fiction and nonfiction. Uh, the first book I wrote was about Venezuela. I lived in Venezuela for a couple of years working on that book. And it's um, a clocked account of the coup, the uprising against Hugo Chavez back in 2002. So it was, uh, he was very unpopular at that time, and um, there was a huge mass march to try to oust him. And then a bunch of people ended up dying, and the military tried to boot him out, and he was sort of arrested and then uh, was going to be shipped to Cuba. But then at the last moment, he sort of miraculously returned and then consolidated power, and then he and his uh, cronies have been sort of in power ever since. So that was my first project. And then um, I also work on fiction, and that is more of the, like, military thriller side little bit Michael crichton in the sense that um, I geek out on a lot of technology and research, and I try to integrate that into into interesting novels about uh, how technology is changing the
1: world. It also sounds like, um, you know, with your nonfiction, it almost blends into what you do with military thriller. Like, it's kind of a an influence anyway, I would say.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I found that, um, you know, I had actually was supposed to write a novel when I got to Venezuela. That was what my grant stipulated I was supposed to do. (laughs) But I sort of uh, deviated from that and uh, wrote the nonfiction. And it was very um, fascinating and kind of liberating to do nonfiction because... when you're doing fiction, you're always sort of second guessing yourself and doubting and saying, "Oh, would the character say that? Or would they not? Or does that work or not?" And when you, as you know probably, when doing nonfiction, you're just like, "Okay, this is what happened. This is how I need to report it." So it's it takes a lot of the weight off you when you when you get to do nonfiction.
4: Which one did you personally like better? Which one do you personally like better, fiction or nonfiction?
3: You know, I, I kind of oscillate back and forth. So I've, I I sometimes wish I could you know, do more nonfiction. Um, But when this series came out, you know, I was offered three books, so I've stayed on that track. Um, But, yeah, I really enjoy... And the other thing about it uh, is that it's much more... uh, Doing nonfiction is much more... Uh, cooperative, like you're going out, you're meeting people, you're, you're setting up interviews, you're traveling. And that's, uh, I think a little bit healthier for you sometimes than when you're sitting, uh, you know, in your office by yourself, uh, in your own little world. So I do miss doing a lot of that nonfiction, a lot of it for the, the personal interaction side of it.
1: Oh, totally. I agree. That's the best part of doing nonfiction. Uh, fiction you're, you can do anywhere really and you don't, uh, you don't get out as much. I, you know, I personally, I agree with you. And the other thing is you're right. It takes the pressure off because you're just writing what they did and what they said and how they did it and all that. So you don't have to create any, any, anything to, to make it uh, sound good.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I sort of remember this moment where I was interviewing a man who had been involved in this march in Venezuela. Uh, he had tragically lost his son. who was shot that day, but he had just sort of said some things, um, about why he had been marching and how, you know, he was a patriot and that he believed in, uh, Venezuela and that because of his patriotic feelings, he would, he would die for Venezuela. And, um, I thought, well, wow, I probably would never have made a character say that um, because it might have come off as you know kind of jingoistic. But I'm like, you know, you said it, so it's going in there, and I don't have to worry about it, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's it, that's the that's the relief of it all because if you write it in a character, you're always analyzing them. You know? Would he really say that? Is this good dialogue? You kind of go through that. Um, So listen, now we get into this series. This is book three, so this is a series you're doing. Um, Let's start with that. Um, What exactly is this series about? Maybe give a little bit of an outline of what Empire series is, The Course of Empire.
3: Right, so um, basically it's a series of books that looks at a group of uh, military leaders and scientists um, who are developing the next generation of weapons. And so the first book is really an arms race between the United States and China as they both try to sort of get be the first one to create this new merging of three principal technologies, which is AI, uh, genetic engineering, and nanotechnology. So um, it's very much a book about how how science advances, how technology grows. Uh, it's looking at all sort of different aspects of it. Um, there's a lot of good action in it. I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of gunfights. And you know, even in this book, this last book is a, sort of the culmination of, of the three and ends up as an apocalypse story, you know, when this – technology sort of gets out of hand. But um, the underlying themes are looking at how technology uh, changes us, um, how it sort of tends to develop a life of its own, and, you know, of course, how things can spiral out of control despite your best intentions.
4: Well, that's kind of my question. You've got three probably the leading technologies in the world is facing right now. As you write your theme, are you trying to be predictive in your fiction as you're writing it? Uh,
3: Yeah, actually. I mean, obviously, you know, the the ultimate goal is to entertain. So if if this stuff will happen this quickly or as dramatically, uh, I hope not. (laughs) But in in the sense of trying to find out how stuff works – uh, how it would come together, you know, talking to subject matter experts uh, and trying to sort of predict definitely. So the books all begin in 2026, so we sort of begin in a period a little bit farther out um, than where we are, but basically based on everything that's kind of available right now. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's definitely trying to sort of predict uh, how things might develop.
1: Do you feel like kind of a, a pressure to be – uh, realistic, like in, in your descriptions and what you think is going to happen and how you do it? And does that give you a fear of being maybe something changes differently while the book's out or the series out and it kind of updates it?
3: Yeah, that, that's always a risk, yeah. Um, but, but for the most part, uh, I think um, as long as you're trying to get into the science and represent it as accurately as you can, I think it, it's, it works well in the sense that the reader will go along, even if there's some sort of inaccuracies. So the first book, uh, it was published in 2018. And uh, at that point, there wasn't uh, like backgrounds in, in for Zoom calls, right? Which is now everybody knows you can change your backgrounds, and so that was kind of like this this revolutionary idea I had <laughs> like back in 2016, right? And so anybody wow. reading that book now, go, oh wow, this is in the future. There's new there's new backgrounds <laughs> for for your it's Zoom so calls, awesome. right? <laughs>
4: this, you can change your background. What is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: um but some of the technology you know is actually more interesting if you you delve into it a little bit more for example you know nanotechnology i think tends to get a bit of a bad rap because maybe you know star trek or whatever it just sort of comes in as a sort of magic you know oh the nanobots came in and they fixed whatever problem the character's had right um but when you look at nanotechnology um a little bit closer, it's actually extremely fascinating um, and extremely probable that it will happen soon. And this is going back to like Richard Feynman back in the 50s, you know, the, the famous Nobel physicist saying, really there's no reason why this shouldn't happen uh, because it's already happening within us. So the idea that there's these tiny machines that move atoms around actually is happening every minute of our lives. Every time you blink, you're breaking down ATP to ADP. Every time uh, any nutrient is moving across a cell wall in your body, that is the technology that they're they're uh, modeling this after. So um, it's, it's actually quite fun to create these sort of scenes of, with the scientists sort of piecing these things together. And of course, the fun thing about that too is it opens up all these kind of opportunities to talk about what it means to be human, uh, how fast technology is evolving, how it's changing us, and that's kind of the, some of the underlying uh, themes that I enjoyed putting into the books.
4: Well, there you go, Brian. You got my next question. Yeah. Because uh, you're known you know, for your research. What do you enjoy writing, or how do you, and how do you interact between people and technology? Do you like? Is it harder for you to write people than it is to write the technology? How do you make them interact with each other?
3: Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. And it actually uh comes relatively easily, um in part because the several, most of the characters are scientists, right? So it allows you to sort of have them be in an action scene in one minute, you know, uh, you know, in a helicopter or a helicopter crashes or whatever. And then the next minute, you know, they can be thinking they can be thinking about the technology as things are happening. So you have to give that, get that kind of balance, right? You don't want to feel like you're just dumping, right, data dumping. But as long as the characters have a reason to be thinking about the technology, the science, it tends to flow pretty well.
1: Now, the last person that was on the show yesterday has as kind of a, an idea of the same type of thing with AI and uh-huh. futuristic stuff. But with him, uh, AI, as it got so advanced, instead of killing humans or, or destroying the world and all that, it decided it was too good for humans, so it just quit humans. Huh. <laughs> so, well, anyway, so... Like you I, do. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm over it. But what why I bring that up is how do you or do you write a personality for your AI?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. So I really wanted to make sure that, the AI in this book wasn't, um, you know, wringing its hands, ha um, ha you know, out to get people. You know, it, it becomes sentient, and then it, its immediate decision is to kill everybody, right? And I didn't want to sort of Agent Smith versus Neo or even like a HAL 9000 versus, you know, hey, Baldwin hey. in 2001, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I wanted to make the AI, um, basically all the AI in the book is doing exactly what it's programmed to do, and it's much more about the people, the different agendas that the people have in using it that cause the problems. So it's much more about, um, for example, there's a character, Riona Finley, who's essentially like an eco-terrorist. So she kidnaps some of the scientists so that she can use it to um, uh, reverse climate change. Um, and another character is actually a young girl who um, had a rare genetic disease. And her mother works at the military with this technology and sort of illegally used the technology to give her gene therapy. Um, And so she sort of wakes up from from being ill and then realizes that there's something else in her head. Um, The AI was supposed to die off after it cured her, but it's sort of still in her trying. And and as she goes about her life, it's still trying to fix her. Um, So she has to deal with this sort of thing um, inside her. And that metaphor, actually, I think is probably the most interesting in that we should probably look at AI as we look at children, as we look at infants, that, you know, we think about how good is the AI system? Okay, it's as good as the training data that you give it. And so I I think there's going to be sort of juvenile AI, right? There's going to be AI that's sort of at the teen phase (laughs) that hasn't really figured out what's right and wrong, hasn't really figured out, doesn't have enough life experience to make good decisions. So that AI that's in Emma ends up being a very interesting sort of wild card in the the story and how things fall together.
4: Well, for your novice, not-tech reader, what do you have as your... Because your explanations and these technologies are complicated. They can be complicated. We put them in a fiction story, they become more complicated. You have to explain that. Yeah, yeah. How much... Let me. Do you think about your reader and do how much tech do you actually put into this thing so you don't have their eyes start rolling yeah, back in yeah. their head yeah, yeah. saying, "I
3: can't take this anymore." Yeah, and I don't know if it, during this interview I'm going a little too much off on it, but yeah, okay. I think um, it, I think you know it works. It, it, I don't seem. I think that's one of the things I do well. It's just one of the things that um, I, I I spend a lot of time thinking about it, and I don't let it. It's kind of easier to talk about in an interview, you know, but it's also something that, that tends to work pretty seamlessly. As I said before, as long as you're, you know, the characters have a reason to be, you know, working with this stuff and talking about it, then it works well.
1: Yeah. You know, you, when you were writing nonfiction and you were, you were kind of telling a story, there was kind of a point to it. You know, there's mm-hmm. action and things that happen and stuff. So when you're doing this uh, fictional sort of series, are you still trying to tell a story? Is there a, is there a subtext to the whole, to the whole series or one of the books?
3: Yeah. So, you know, the first book is this, uh, um, pretty intense arms race between the U.S. and China. So you have these, you have a mil, uh, an admiral in the U.S., um, and you have a general in China, and they're both sort of in this cat and mouse game, trying to sort of outdo each other, they're both trying to have their teams reach this goal first, but then they're also trying to sabotage each other. So, you know, the Chinese general sends like a commando team to the to the Naval Research Lab in DC and tries to wipe out the scientists. Um, and then, there's a quid pro quo, there's a you know, there's, he later kidnaps some of the U.S. scientists and takes them to China, and that sort of uh, creates an opportunity. Within the Chinese system to sabotage it because, um, there's, they're able to double cross the Chinese. So that's, and that's just an example in the first book. The second book is a little bit more of a, of a look at, um, you know, character development for the main character. His name's Eric Hill. He's, he's a young scientist and he's on a mission to Africa and, um, he, he is in a helicopter crash and he's sort of picked up by this Kohisan tribe and that, I had initially thought it would just be a small part of the book, but once I started to do the research on that group and uh, and, and sort of learned about their situation, it actually became perfect, because this is a group that, was, that has essentially lived without technology. It's almost complete existence. So here you have a character who's an early adopter, believes in technology, believes that technology is the answer, and now he's sort of living with a group where there is no technology. So, and again, this gets back to this idea I mentioned before about what it means to be human and how our technological society is changing us. You know, are we designed, for example, to sit in a car for two hours a day or stare at a screen for 12 hours a day or be sedentary, right? So it it created this really neat um, contrast between how we're programmed to live and how we actually live. And I would argue that the bigger the gap between human evolution and the evolution of our technology, kind of the more miserable we become as a species.
1: (laughs) Certainly, Joe. Yeah, I'm, I'm miserable all the time, so it doesn't really help. <laughs> yeah. You know, since he's been on TikTok, he's just been a real miserable Yeah, I've been laid off. Yeah, yeah. he gets on there and dances. It's just right. too crazy. For me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So listen, Eric Hill. Eric Hill's the main character of yours. So where did he come from? Like, who is he? And And maybe describe what kind of a relationship you have with that character. Like, how do you hear him, see him, interact with him, or do you?
3: Yeah, Eric is a little bit of the the everyman, right? He's a little bit of a vessel. Um, so I would actually say, and I don't know if this is I'm smart in saying this at all, but he's a little bit uh, less formed than a lot of the other characters. For example, you know, Admiral Curtis, you know, is this post. PTSD, you know, traumatized uh, admiral. So his character is kind of very kind of archetypical and in some ways easy to write. Um, You know, and some of the other scientists are are a little bit more caricatures. You know, one's an an eagle, a maniac, um, for example. Um, So he's sort of easy to write. But Eric is a little bit tougher because you do want to create that sense that he could be any reader, right? The reader has to use that character as an avatar. So, um, obviously he has a little bit of the author in him, but I drew him a little bit, um, um, more vaguely probably than some of the other characters. He's a little bit of a wimp sometimes, um, because I'm trying, to, I have to think about a scientist, who's someone who, who who's gets thrown into, you know, combat situations or situations where he's you know kidnapped or tortured, and so he, he's not reacting to this like a Jack Reacher character would. Uh, he, he's he's a lot more vulnerable uh, to this sort of uh, what, to, 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 to sort of real traumatizing situations.
1: Yeah, sort of like me. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. a trauma. What yeah,
1: one big drama. Certainly not a jack. picture. <laughs> okay. uh, well, it's it's interesting how you do that. Now, are, are when you talked about um, the action and stuff, do you think about the violence or the killing and and the action that you do write and and how you write it or present it?
3: Yeah, um, there's it's funny you mention that because the the first book with the China um, uh, U.S. rivalry uh, is has some pretty brutal scenes in it. There's some torture scenes, and my father read the book and he's like, "I had no idea <laughs> you could pick up something like that." You know, he was, he was <laughs> a little bit shocked by it. Um, some of that though came from uh, research, so I had not known a whole lot about the Chinese government and China's relationship to its citizens and to Tibet into Tibet until I did the research for this book. And there actually was a period I was like, well, there's you know, should I make China the bad guy or to the Chinese government the bad guy? And then I started doing the research and I was really shocked by a lot of the stuff I read. Um a lot of the torture the government does, a lot of the killing, the way they use the prison systems, for example, to incarcerate uh, political prisoners. And so um, a lot of that violence w- was, that was depicted in the book was actually trying to be true to some of the firsthand accounts that I read about victims uh, of the government.
4: Are there things that you do your research, whether it's on the technology side or perhaps your Chinese research, but that you say, you know what, maybe this shouldn't, shouldn't be in the book. You know, this is, I don't want to write this. I'm not going to say self-cancel. That's sort of the you know, cliché phrase, but it's just things that you know. I'm not gonna. I'm
3: keeping this out. Um, generally, no. Um, um, I, I I'm, I try to be as, um, you know, I, I, I look at my writing as my thing, and it's my, maybe my own therapy or my own sort of uh, time uh, with my mind, right? That <laughs> I'm with my mind and I'm thinking about what's right and wrong and what what I can do. And I sh- generally don't uh, feel like I've, I've ever had to sort of cut anything out that I felt was appropriate um, to to the story. Um, and I think, you know, as long as it feels right to the characters, as long as it feels right to um, the subject matter that you're talking about, um, I have generally put it in. Uh, there was this problem... I did have an editor come at me for the second book. There is a scene. It's not on camera. It's actually off camera. But I have a character go to a school, what they believe is a school, and there's been a group of children who have been tortured. And we don't see any of the torture, but we see the children come out, and some of them are missing fingers and limbs. And um, this was um, something that Admiral Curtis, Admiral Curtis's characters, as you might remember, he's a very um, um, a pragmatic military leader, and that he will do whatever he thinks is necessary, and that basically he had um, kidnapped the leaders of different factions. In Syria, in the, and there's a fictitious war that the U.S. has with Syria, and to, to get peace, he basically kidnapped the, the different leaders. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds.
4: At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
3: Children and forced them to sign a peace agreement, and the, the children were kept in the school to keep the peace and uh, so that was a pretty kind of again it wasn 't on camera but it was it was uh, you know depicted pretty closely and I did get some flack for that, and I had to sort of go back and forth with them. Uh, luckily, they gave the book to a different editor because that editor was, was actually trying to block it. she was actually as you can 't do this. Um, and the other editor said it's fine. I like it, so it went through. Back off. Yeah,
4: okay. yeah. yeah. So, it is kind of dark thinking, though. I think your dad has a. Had a-
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think, and that's part of being in character, right? You're, you're an admiral. Uh, you're, you're leading, you know, uh, major combat operations in another country. Uh, and in this case, what happened to Curtis was he lost like 200 marines in a day. Uh, what would you do? To make sure that didn't happen again, what what lengths would you go to to protect your soldiers and uh, and that you feel like you know are under your command, and um, that actually there is a historic um, uh, precedent for that. Emmanuel Noriega did that when uh, in, in in Panama he was um, he was arrested uh, and he, there was a coup essentially. A bunch of military leaders got him, and he said, "I need to make a phone call." Before you do whatever you're gonna do with me and he, in his one phone call he called a friend who basically rounded up the families of all the generals who had arrested him and said if you don't let me kill I'm gonna I'm gonna kill all your families so uh, th- uh, we admit those are the days yeah. we miss <laughs> <you>. <laughs> well you, you,
4: these are complex books I and mean, it's even more complex by them together as a series but they're kind of a standalone book sort of in the series. Right. Am I, yeah. If, I, if I, how I how I read them. Um, so did you know where you were going? I mean, I don't, I don't want to answer the outline or the seat of the mm-hmm, pants or the mm-hmm. pantser, but did you have an idea of your character development or the story development or that just kind of come to you as you're going? Especially if Eric, is, as you said, is an unformed character.
3: Right, right. So the, the first book was um, a situation where I, I, I had some ideas for a longer book that I kind of worked on in graduate school. So I had some concepts. But I'd actually made the first book to be pretty much just a standalone. And then the, the the Blackstone, when they read it, they said, you know, oh, is there more of this? And I was like, oh, of course, yes, there's tons more. Um, and so that became um, – so I knew the second and third books, I, I planned those out pretty well uh, together at the same time. So I knew kind of where I was going. I actually don't. Like to outline too much. I mean, I know essentially what has to happen towards the end, but I—I I, one of the things I enjoy about writing is kind of not knowing the middle and working out the middle and the, and the steps to get to that end. So I don't—I try not to exhaust myself in outlining because I find that um, it might limit me in what I actually end up writing, and that it's good to kind of go off on tangents sometimes and let yourself uh, explore when you as you're going along.
4: Yeah, I'm at the personal story. I'm not I'm not much of an outliner either. I kind of know where I'm going. I write fiction. Mm-hmm. I did write espionage, but I'm changing Changing a little bit. And I've been told I need to write an outline for this next book, more of an outline, like 12 pages, however. And I am, my brain is exploding because I'm <laughs> like, I don't want to know what ha- I don't know what happens. Then. Even if it's an outline and it can be wrong, that's not the way my brain works. I'm, I'm writing the book in my head. So this whole middle part, I feel it myself trying to make it right. But it doesn't have to be because I'm used to just writing it out. Yeah. So it's really a, a transition, and I I'm struggling. So for those who are, you know, in between, I know you're paying because I'm trying to transition to a different style myself. Yeah. Is it different? Al, are you guys were for, for nonfiction outlining and things like that.
3: Well, actually, my advice to you—I uh, mean, can you get away with just making a bunch of stuff up in the middle and then changing it later? What?
4: <laughs> Is that- I am kind of <laughs> doing that, but it's not the way I work. Yeah, it's like, yeah. This doesn't make sense. I'm too common. This- they wouldn't—they wouldn't do this. So I'm like, ah. And i am am actually putting too much into it uh, to avoid getting pounded to do it again because I don't want to do it again. Yeah. yeah. So it's like I—I—I I'm, 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 don't even know if it's first person, third person, or mixed shit. So don't—don't—don't don't ask me. But, you know, I, but once again, is outlining for you nonfiction, or is it different when you're going forward?
3: Yeah, to, to outline nonfiction, um, yeah, that, that would be something where I, I would feel I'd have to, 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 to block it out a lot better, right? You've got to know, okay, who do I have to talk to, or how, where am I going to get this information? Uh, you know, what if I can't get the information? How would I modify it? So, yeah, I, I, with nonfiction, I would definitely say you've got to have your ducks in a row. But the good thing is, right, you can sell a nonfiction project with just an outline and your fiction projects, as I understand it, you really got to write the whole book out before anybody's going to want to buy it.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful. I think, I think plus, you've got to decide with nonfiction, but even fiction, you've got to decide who's telling the story. You're writing and you're, you're telling a story, right? And um, so who's going to be telling the story in the nonfiction? Who are you writing it for? Who you're trying to, and a lot of times in nonfiction, you're writing about the, uh, the people that were murdered or whatever happened to them, like the victims.
3: Yeah, and you feel a strong connection to do that justice, right? To do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And you don't have that in the fiction mm-hmm. as much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What can you say? Yeah. You know? you, and speaking of, so this is this is the next question is here to help maybe your father some, whether he should get a complete <laughs> security system or something to protect himself from you. But um, so when you're writing the bad people, the characters, the evil, the ones that do the bad torture to the kids or whatever they're doing in the book, um, how do you get into that mindset? Like how do you write that sort of stuff?
3: Um, yeah, as I sort of alluded to before with the Manu Noriega stuff, there's usually some sort of um, inspiration, you know, some sort of crime or uh, thing that's happened in the past that sort of seeds that idea. Um, and then I sort of try to take it from there. And um, I think, you know, doing that dark side, it's good to have. Uh, motivation, right? So, the, in the first book, the the General Mang, he's the Chinese um, counterpart to Curtis. Um, he he is uh, pretty sadistic too, and um, but he has a backstory. His backstory was that his wife and child were murdered uh, during an uprising while he was stationed in Tibet. They were they were accidentally killed, but he 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 holds um, a deep bitterness against. Um, Tibetan people because of that. And, and so once that sort of backstory is locked in for that character, it's a little easier to, to make them be, um, you know, as vindictive and cruel as they are because you, you can kind of understand why. And that's something that uh, often doesn't come across, especially in cinema, right? You, a, a movie starts and suddenly there's a bad guy just murdering people in cold blood, right? And you're like, what, you know? What's going on? What's what's making this person tick, right? And it, it becomes a little unsatisfying when there's just a you know a, a killer with no sort of uh, reason for it or no uh, no sort of you know, understandable backstory to it. I don't know. Did yeah. you, do, would you agree with that, or do you feel that there is just? Oh, this, totally. You know,
1: I, and just, sometimes it even wrecks the story if they don't if you don't just under if you don't understand the person, you know, the bad person, kind of what drives them why they feel this way what's happened to them if you don't understand it I, I think it it leaves a big detail out and you're missing a lot and it becomes just a pure action killing sort of book and it's not I, or movie or show and i i sort of lose my interest in that yeah me as well. yeah but remember
4: a bad person never knows they're bad
1: right usually doesn't know they're bad they're just doing their
4: thing
3: yeah. right exactly exactly so that you, to them if you're gonna be that character to them it must make logical sense right so yeah absolutely
1: yeah you got to relate to the character even if you don't like what they do you got to understand them so you know uh, i I think anyway that's kind of how I I picture it it doesn't always work but in general it does you know um, so we how how many Books? Are you going to do in the series, or do you know? Do you kind of have that mapped out?
3: So this is this series is wrapped up. The uh, the course of empire series is wrapped up. Um, they, I've left a few you know loose ends. So if there there was um, you know a book deal, <laughs> then <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> then I I can jumpstart it because it basically ends. With the the end of the world, with a handful of survivors, so um, there's definitely most of the main characters have survived, and there are sort of opportunities to let them sort of move out and explore this uh, this new world that's been created um, through this this mixture of AI and and, and nanotechnology. So, um, but I'm actually working now on. A fantasy book, so I'm actually having a lot of fun with it. It's, um, I mean, it's a lot more world building than I've ever had to do before, and it's a lot more kind of linguistically interesting because you're having to, you know, look up a lot of words, look at roots of words, look at, you know, Old Saxon and Norse roots, and it's it's been quite fun that way. And um, I I used to teach a lot when I used to teach university. I taught a lot of Joseph Campbell, a lot of structuralism. Uh, and, you know, archetypical story structure. And I've always kind of um, stayed away from it in my own writing, you know. But now I'm sort of like, okay, am I good enough to write something that's, you know, archetypical that doesn't feel too archetypical, right, making trying to make yeah. it fresh and, and original in this sort of classic high fantasy uh, setting?
1: How long did it take you to do each one of these, roughly?
3: So, uh, well, <laughs> so the the first book in the series every, every author laughs about yeah yeah that. yeah that's the is that, yeah. funny <laughs> getting hot faster question. they get faster so the first um, book I started as a draft in graduate school and I, so I started drafting that thing in two thousand. And then I went to Venezuela in 2004, I did that. the book on Venezuela, that was published. Uh, my wife and I had a child, and then I was sort of stuck at home a lot, so I dusted off the the manuscript I'd work on in graduate school, and that became The Last Swordmaker. Uh, but it was, wasn't was until 2018 that that got published. So that's, you know, the, how, however you want to look at it, you could argue that it took me 18 years to write that book. Uh, the next one took uh, uh, a year and a half, and the, next, the other one took 11 months. So um, things are getting better. I'm get, I seem to be getting better at this as I go along.
1: Well, well, there's there's got to be a little bit more confidence each time you publish a book, right? You got to get more comfortable in, and, and when you attempt and you're going to write a book or outline something, or you got to have more. Um, it it just comes easier, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. And, and a big part of it is confidence, right? You, you're, you're doubting yourself less. You're letting yourself go, saying, "I'm not going to worry about it now. I'll worry about it in the next edit." You know. So there's a lot of little techniques that I think you you acquire when you just kind of relax in and, and have more confidence in yourself.
4: Exactly. So that leads me to the question, even for your series and maybe your, your new fantasy work, where did you start? Did you start with the characters? Did you start with the plot? And Did you start with the world that you're creating and the fantasy? Where 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 did you start to to build your story and to build your
3: book out? Um, a lot of the, the Course of Empire trilogy was um, sort of questions about, Um, you know, the future, like what, what could happen if this technology takes off or what, you know, and how could you make that? And then the big challenge is how would you make that interesting? How do you make that engaging to readers? Um, so I think for me, it's, 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 um, it comes from different things for each project. So for each one, I try to, uh, challenge myself with, say, the cultural themes. You know, what what themes do I want to look at for this book? So, uh, in the first book, a lot of the stuff uh, I hadn't anticipated ended up being about China and Tibet. In the second book, it ended up being um, about this Khoisan tribe in, in Africa, which kind of surprised me. Um, and then the third one was a lot more looking at AI and how AI would develop. So, for each book, I want to pick something that I don't particularly know a whole lot about, but I need to get, I want to learn about, and I try to build that into the book. Um, The last book, the fantasy book, is um, a little bit about um, midlife. Uh, I had my my sister die about a year and a half ago. I had a good friend die last year. And so the idea with the, part of the motivation for this fantasy book is to uh, kind of study philosophy or bring in some philosophy about uh, what it means to be uh, halfway or on the a little bit farther than halfway through. <laughs> like there's less years ahead of you than there are behind you and how you're going to deal with that. And when you're dealing with fantasy, things can be kind of interesting because different characters live or different races live different time periods. So you can have a race of elves, for example, that live 400 years. And so the idea of second chances is always there. Oh, I always have time to go and do the next thing. I can fail at this thing, and I have another chance. But if you're human, you know, and you're in your 50s, and you're like, okay, I've really only got one last chance at this probably, and then it's over. So it's, it's been fun to – I don't want to sound morbid about it because of the motivation behind it, but it's it's been a kind of philosophical uh, adventure – to go into fantasy, which again is sort of, I think is kind of primal to us. There's sort of something in us that kind of gravitates to fantasy, but also sort of self-exploring in the sense of of um, philosophy and, and how the best way to live your life when you know it's going to be wrapping up.
1: Well, you know, there's also um, the advantage of we're able to have a midlife crisis, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because there's so many people that have never and different co- people in countries that never even have that opportunity to, to get depressed about getting old. Right,
3: right. And, yeah, that, like getting old in <laughs> itself is a privilege that not many people get to experience. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. It's, it's the line for network. Right? Yeah. The yeah. end is getting closer than the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so we're, we're really lucky to be old.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, then you're really, really lucky, Al, because yeah. look how old you are
1: yeah I know I can't wait to get your age I think I'm older so yeah I know I can't wait I to get shut up yeah <laughs> until I get as old as you Wow um well that's great and and you know so speaking of that, when you say that um and 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 putting things out and doubting and all that stuff do you do, are you conscious of how people perceive you like it's a really judgmental world, so you're putting stuff out there, and um, do you look at? social media and reviews and all that sort of stuff, or do you sort of just stay away from that? Uh,
3: I think it's hard not to. And um, uh, obviously when a book first comes out, you're really kind of thirsty for that, right? You think, oh, what are people going to say? How is it going to be received? And um, I think artists kind of need that on some level. I mean, you need the good stuff, right? You need the sense that, oh, a lot of people – hey, look, a lot of people like this book. It, it's sold enough copies or whatever. And I think um, – I don't think I'm uh, bulletproof enough to not have that, right? If, if nobody liked my books or whatever, I'm not sure I, I, I'd keep going. But um, the first book – what was interesting about the first book about Venezuela – is that I had uh, uncovered, or in the book basically exposes that the Chavez government had fired on this crowd, which had been something that they had worked very hard to to confuse and had, had an alternative narrative in the media. And so when that book came out, most of the first reviews or, or actions on it were from, um, you know, people who were paid by the Venezuelan government to... Do damage control. <laughs> so that was, you know, it was your first book. That was a you know, pretty hard punch in the nose because at first I didn't realize that these people were, you know, being paid to do this. So um, that 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 hurt, right? I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That kind of hurt. But you know, it turned out fine. You know, the Economist. Put it as one of their best books of the year. It, it, it was critically acclaimed, so it was all fine. But it was very disconcerting to feel like, okay, you know, I'm this young idealistic writer, and I put all this work into this project, and then the first, you know, round of feedback is just like these are lies you know this is all made up this guy doesn't know what he's talking about don't listen to him you know he's a he's an you know apologist for the Empire you know an American gringo. And that can your wife yeah yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah yeah it's a you gotta have tough skin right you get, and to some degree you, get, you gotta have tough skin and I think
1: I I think I've gotten to the point where I just look at the overall and and good enough for me. I don't want to get into it too much because people call you all sorts of names, right? And and you can get emotional about it, angry or whatever, yep. upset. And then it sort of takes your mind off of what what you're doing and why you're doing it, mm-hmm. right? So because yeah. you know, it's quite often it's not accurate yes. what they're Yes. Me, yes, yes, right. You know, right. <laughs> you know? Uh, but anyway, so that's interesting. Um so listen, um are you doing, uh, do you have a website? Are you doing social media? All that stuff. Where can we re- readers find you and say something bad about you? <laughs>
3: um, well, if you, um, if you want to say something bad about me, go to, uh, man, house of website.
4: I'm happy you guys got readers. I don't even get any of <laughs> you bad. Some <news. Don't laughs> of readers. Yeah. yeah. I'm impressed.
3: So I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Brian Nelson author is the, is on Facebook and uh, my webpage is Brian Nelson And there's a, uh, there's a lot of articles and, you know, uh, shorter pieces on there and some excerpts from the book on there. So that's probably a good place to start. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, okay. check it out. Okay.
1: Yeah, we'll put all that up on our website as well and stuff like that. So do you have, who's, your, who's your writer influences besides Joe? Uh, <laughs> um,
4: this is easy. I can, I, can, I can guess who it is. <laughs> yeah, not me. No, this is a, you're a Crichton guy. Tell me you're Michael Crichton guy.
3: I, I, I am a, a Crichton guy. I was a yes. Crichton guy. I am a Crichton guy, absolutely. Thank you for noticing. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I, I do like um, very old school stuff. So a book like War of the Worlds. Uh, um, like yes. old, very old H.G. Wells, uh, I will look at those things meticulously, uh, cause I find them very, um, um, fascinating. And, uh, since you guys are, um, you know, a little bit older, I'm going to mention something that you might have heard of. <laughs> this is from the seventies. There was a musical version of the War of the Worlds. Um, and it was, it had Richard Burton in it. It had, um, you know, one of the guys from Tin Lizzy in it. There's all these kind of famous <laughs> actors in it, and they—it was like the psychedelic um, uh, album, like concept album that you only had back in the '70s, right? And I would listen to that thing over and over again, and it—it it definitely uh, made me fall in love with the um, catastrophe apocalypse narrative. And uh, if you haven't heard of it or checked it out, check it out. Because the music is actually pretty fascinating uh, as well. <clears throat> but there's all these kind of strange big names attached to the concept. And even they actually, actually they did a uh, – they redid it. They redid it a few years ago, and, like, Liam Neeson was, like, the narrator for it. So oh, um, <laughs> check it out. But anyway, yeah, I do have this kind of, um, you know, back then they they didn't call it science fiction, they called it scientific romances, but, like, this sort of Jules, Jules Verne, H.G. Uh, Wells kind of stuff um, was kind of the yeah. feel I wanted to give, especially in that first book, The, 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 the Last Word Maker.
1: Right. Well, there is something fascinating about the older stuff i i'm totally immersed in it i love it yep yeah Uh, there's nothing better but and plus
4: the end of the world is a musical comedy you know yeah. <laughs> you turn your trilogy into a musical right. Of the that's world. right. Let's, do it. Let's sing and dance our way to the end of the world. Right, yeah,
3: right, yeah. right. Yeah. James Missionary South Pacific, right? You read the book and then that. you're like,
1: What? <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna wash that spaceship out of my hair. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Anyway. Well, we appreciate uh you being on the show. It's been really uh interesting, a lot of fun, learned a lot. I've taken a lot of notes, so yep. my next book I can write. And it'll be a, a great book now. All right. Fantastic. All you. No,
3: thank you very much. You it's been a pleasure.
1: So now the book we're talking about, The Great Unmaking, and it's the Course of Empire Series Book 3, and our guest is the author of that and many other books, Brian A. Nelson. So thank you very much. Okay. okay.
3: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or show, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.